You're listening to the Untaming Podcast. We wild the child. Here is your host, Emily. Hey, welcome to episode 23 of the Untaming Podcast. Thank you so much to the listeners who have written reviews since our last episode with microbiologist Marie-Claire Arieta. I really appreciate you making the effort to acknowledge that you value this podcast. So thank you. Here is a review from Australia by Soul Mama. In every episode so far, Emily has facilitated an interesting and thought-provoking discussion on what child rearing can look like when we remember we are not separate from nature, we are nature. I think about these discussions long after the episode is finished. Looking forward to more. Thank you, Soul Mama. And here is one from Lucien Bow in the United Kingdom. An incredible wealth of knowledge and wisdom in each episode. Absolutely in love with the podcast and I'm hoping for many more episodes to be released soon. Wow, thanks Lucien. Uh, here is a message from our sponsor, Feel free to spend the 30 seconds thinking about the knowledge guests have shared in this podcast and whether it's valuable enough to inspire you to write a review. Today we have an extra special guest, Mary Francel. Today she is helping to give you the rundown on all things breastfeeding, but you will also hear from her in the future as a guest host on the Untaming podcast. For the next month or so, I'm resuming releasing episodes weekly. So next week will be an episode from Mary with Alyssa Schnell on inducing lactation, which ties in nicely with today's episode. And then the following week is an interview Mary did with Dr. James McKenna. If that name sounds familiar to you, he's the world-renowned expert on infant sleep. So without further ado, here is Mary. Fifty-nine-year-old board-certified lactation consultant Mary Francel currently lives in Bellingham with her husband Howard. They have three grown children: Audrey, Emily, and Jack. Mary holds a BA from the University of Notre Dame and an MA from the University of Wisconsin. She writes a blog called "What Babies Need" and administers the Biologically Normal Infant Sleep Group on Facebook. Last night she had nine hours of sleep, and for lunch today she had peanut butter on gluten-free toast, carrots, a peach, and a hard-boiled egg. Mary, welcome to the show. Nice to speak to you, Emily. (laughs) So we have a bit of a meet-cute. I first came across you when I heard your interview with James McKenna on biologically normal infant sleep, and it was such an excellent interview that I decided to contact you to see if you'd be open to me sharing it here, but... First, I started stalking you a bit online, and I realized (laughs) that I also wanted to interview you on lactation. And then before I could reach out to you, it was a huge surprise when you messaged me to say that you'd been listening to the podcast and had some interviews that you wondered if I would be interested in sharing. And here we are. (laughs) Wonderful. So before we delve into the interview, can you clarify for us uh, what is this acronym IBCLC, and how is it different to an ordinary lactation consultant? 
Sure, sure. Um, well, IBCLC stands for International Board Certified Lactation Consultant, and um, it's different from some of the other acronyms you may have heard. Um, CLC, I believe, stands for Certified Lactation Counselor. Um, there's a couple of others as well. Uh, sometimes people um, have heard of peer counselors uh, who help with lactation, the uh, Lacha League leaders, which are volunteer breastfeeding counselors. Um, so there are different levels of lactation support that are helpful to new parents. Um, and generally, the ones I mentioned, such as a CLC or a Lacha League leader, would help with people who have simple questions, um, you know, simple issues that they need resolved, um, basically helping with the normal course of breastfeeding. Um, a board-certified lactation consultant, however, is more of a medical professional. Um, we have had um, extensive training in lactation. Um, we've had um, medical courses that we've taken. And um, so we're very much um, someone you would go to if you have a an issue that's maybe a little bit more outside of uh, a simple breastfeeding issue that could be solved by, you know, speaking to somebody as a peer. Um, so that's essentially, we're, we're, unfortunately, lactation consultants has become kind of a catch-all phrase. And um, really, uh, lactation consultants, um, we're hoping that we can just make that our, something that th people think of when they think of an IBCLC and lactation counselors are other people who might have less training but can be helpful um, to support parents in uh, simple, simpler situations. Mm -hmm. So I had thought that an IBCLC was connected with La Leche League, but is that not right? No, no. Um, La Leche League leaders um, are volunteer breastfeeding counselors. Now there is a little bit of a connection because, La, and I've actually been a La Leche League leader for many years. That's how I got started. But La Leche League International, which was really the first organization to, um, to start um, really reviving breastfeeding and become, has become the world experts in many ways in breastfeeding. La Leche League itself started the, um, or was an impetus behind the international um, board certified, uh, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, I can't remember exactly what the acronym stands for, but it's by IBC, uh, IBCLE, I think, mm -hmm. uh, the International Board of Lactation Consultant Examiners. That's it. And essentially, that is the governing body. That is the accrediting body. So it does the testing and makes sure that um, lactation consultants who are IBCLCs have taken the right education, that they've passed a board exam the same way, you know, a, a doctor or a nurse or someone else might pass a board exam. So they do have a connection to it, but Laleche leaders are very different. They are volunteer breastfeeding counselors where we are uh, medical professionals. Aha, uh -huh. thank you. Um, can you Tell us about breastfeeding in the first few days of a baby's life, like a colostrum and when the milk comes in, that sort of thing. Absolutely. Um, so the first milk that um, comes in is, or actually it's present really from the last trimester or even maybe the last half of, of gestation. Um, colostrum is a very thick liquid, um, but it's a very tiny amount um, really, a, t a teaspoon is a full feed for an infant, mm -hmm. but it is packed full of 
uh, immunoglobulins, um, all kinds of uh, nutrient factors, um, tremendous amount of, of immune factors that really are the baby's first immunization. They're um, what really help the baby's gut um, you know, start establishing its microbiome. Um, it has tremendous amount of immune properties that, that help fight off infection. It helps pass the uh, meconium, which is the first stool that a baby has, um, and it helps get that out. So in the first few days of life, a baby doesn't get a huge amount of volume, and they don't really need a huge amount of volume uh, until the milk increases after about three or four days of life. But colostrum is tremendously important um, if for some reason uh, a mother or a parent is not able to latch a baby on in the beginning, it's really important for them to hand express the colostrum and give it to the baby, possibly just in a little teaspoon. Um, it really helps um, get jumpstart that baby's immune system and is, and is really essential for them. Okay, so you were saying that they only need such a tiny amount. What sort of frequency can you expect there for the feedings for colostrum? So generally, you want a baby to be at the breast between 8 to 12 times in 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And that's generally the case for the first you know, few weeks. Yeah. Um, sometimes it gets down a little bit after a few weeks and goes closer to maybe 8 to 10 times. But sometimes babies can nurse more often than that. But definitely, it's really important to try to latch baby on as often as possible in the first few weeks, and that includes the first few days. Mm -hmm. um, so keeping a baby skin to skin is a really great way of not only bonding with the baby, but being um, really connected to when they need to nurse. So that often a baby, especially if they're skin to skin, they will start to kind of move to the breast themselves, or they'll start turning their heads or smacking their lips or whatever it is, and you can get them down to the breast. So it's really important to keep your baby um, skin to skin as much as possible, um, unswaddled whenever possible, put a blanket over the two of you, and that will help you be tied into the cues so that you know when the baby needs to nurse. And again, if the baby isn't uh, is very, very sleepy, perhaps they had medications, that sort of thing, um, you don't want the baby to go less than 8 to 12 times in 24 hours. You want to make sure you wake that baby up and you really offer the breast frequently mm -hmm. or hand express if uh, for some reason they, they can't latch on or they're not able to. Mm. Okay. How common is it really that a mother truly can't breastfeed? Well, it's not very common. Um, there is a um, condition called um, IGT, insufficient glandular tissue, and it's pretty rare. The statistics sometimes are varied. It, it can sometimes, people think it's only about 1% or maybe between 1% and 5% of women have this condition. But it's important to remember that even with this insufficient glandular tissue, most women still produce some milk. And these women can still breastfeed their babies. Um, they may need to use a nursing supplementer at the breast or supplement with bottles. Um, some people will supplement with formula. Some people will supplement with donor milk. In fact, I have a, a good friend who's a lactation consultant, and both of her daughters had insufficient glandular tissue. And because she's a lactation consultant and is, and is connected in, she was able to get enough donor milk for both of her grandchildren to be basically completely human milk fed for you know, the first year or two. Wow. So it is very, very possible still to um, breastfeed, even if you have that insufficient glandular tissue. Um, now there's might be a, a few very rare cases, for example, if someone's had a, a double mastectomy, 
even in that case, even if they're not able to produce a drop of milk, they could still, if they've had reconstructive surgery, um, feed the baby at the breast with a nursing supplementer. So again, it's very, very rare. Again, there are times where there is an issue with not having enough milk, um, but it's pretty rare. And most of the time when people think they don't have enough milk, it's really because um, they have been told some uh, myths such as, oh, your baby's crying all the time. They must be hungry and you're not, they're not, you know, getting enough out of your breast. Well, that may not be true. That may be that the baby is just, you know, fussy. And um, if you put the baby to the breast more often, it will, your breast will produce more milk and they'll be able to, to increase the supply. People often hear, oh, you know, the baby is wanting to be held all the time. They won't let me put them down. Well, that may be because they want to breastfeed more and they're working to build up the supply. So there's a lot of false alarms when it comes to people thinking they have a low milk supply. And unfortunately, we have a culture where um, physicians often will say, just give the, or even, you know, mothers-in-law or whoever will say, just give the baby a bottle of formula. And that unfortunately then leads to the baby being less hungry at the breast, takes less milk out of the breast, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where the milk supply does drop. So the main thing is if you are concerned about having enough milk is to consult with a board-certified lactation consultant. They'll be able to troubleshoot and figure out, is this a real thing or is it uh, you know, where we can work on management and get your supply back up if that is indeed the case? Or is there something else really going on, some medical issue where we might need to do something else as well? Mm-hmm. What about, uh, you often hear of... Um cracked nipples and pain and how we need sure. to tough, toughen up our nipples. Uh, right. <laughs> is this, uh, yeah, what, what is this? Well, you know, it's funny because even in the Leche League, um, people, they used to say, well, you should take a, a washcloth and roughen your nipple, uh, you know, uh, scrub your nipple nipples so they'll toughen up. But we've since learned that that's really not true at all. And that if there is pain or is there is cracking, anything like that, there's something else going on. Um, it's most likely that there's uh, a positioning issue where the baby is not give it, getting a big enough mouthful of breast. And again, that is something that sometimes a LH league leader, um, a certified lactation counselor, someone can help with the positioning and, and the issue can go away immediately or get fixed quickly. If not, uh, seeing a, a lactation consultant can really help. There can be some times where there's eczema on the nipple um, or there's a, a mother may have had a um, antibiotic during labor delivery. If she had a cesarean section, you always have an antibiotic and maybe then there's an overgrowth of yeast on her nipples and she needs some treatment for that. Um, there can be all kinds of things Uh, There could be a tongue tie. There could be different issues that are causing this pain. Um, And so it's really important to meet with someone to troubleshoot that because breastfeeding should not hurt. It can be a little tender in the first few days when the baby first latches on, but it shouldn't hurt throughout the nursing. There shouldn't be any cracking or anything like that. If that's the case, um, you need to get help. Right. And I guess the baby is learning too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. The babies are learning, although it's amazing because babies really most of the time know exactly what to do. Mm -hmm. So what I often recommend to people is that when you, even if you can, often people will do this right after the birth, but you can often do this even up for the, through the first month is to lay back with the baby skin to skin and let the baby self-attach. You wouldn't necessarily do this every time. You know, if the baby's getting on just fine, you can make sure you put them on and nurse them. But some of the time, let the baby 
crawl their way to the breast. There are all these tremendous reflexes that sometimes we think of as, oh, they're so cute. You hold the baby up and you put their feet down on a surface and they step. It looks like they're walking. Well, yeah, it's very cute, but it's also specifically for a baby to get to the breast. So a baby will use those little stepping motions to push their way up to the breast. They're also using that to knead the mother's uterus to help it contract after birth. Um, they'll, they'll suck on their hands. They'll turn their head from side to side. All of these things are to help the baby get to the breast. So if you are able to lean back, let the baby find the breast, help the baby as needed, they will often be able to get a good mouthful of breast that way and get a good latch and show you basically show um, show the parent how the baby wants to breastfeed. So I highly recommend that folks do that because babies generally come out knowing what to do. Of course, the caveat to that is sometimes if there is, has been medication during uh, labor and birth, that can interrupt that issue. Yeah. That and so there might be times where the baby doesn't have a great sucking reflex, or perhaps there's a perhaps there's a neurological issue. Maybe something happened during the birth. So if there's anything where the baby isn't sucking correctly, or there's some issues with the baby not able to uh, to breastfeed, you do want to see somebody to really kind of figure those things out. And what if a mother is wanting to pump? When yes. should she start doing that? Uh, pumping generally is something that would is best to wait um, uh, at least a month after the baby is born. Because first of all, when you first have the baby, the colostrum is tiny, so you're not going to get very much out while you're pumping. Um, once the milk volume does increase, pumping then can like create an oversupply, which can be very uncomfortable and can lead to engorgement and mastitis and things like that. Um, and and even if that's not what that's not what happens. If you're pumping in the first month, your your milk is increasing gradually for that first month up to between, um, tw well, I'm going to use ounces, so it's not going to be applicable to everyone around the world, but between 25 and 35 ounces is a typical milk supply in 24 hours for a parent. Um, so, but you're not going to have that at the beginning. It's going to slowly, gradually get up to that by a month. So if you're starting to pump it at one week or two weeks, you're not going to get very much out and you're going to get discouraged. Um, plus, uh, you might end up with an oversupply, as I mentioned. If you let your baby regulate your supply and get your supply to the point that they need it, as I said, some babies need a lot. Some people need less than that. Let your baby get their supply to where they need it, and then you can start pumping at about about four weeks or so. Um, and that's often when I recommend if someone wants to introduce a bottle to do it about then, because the babies are, you know, uh, have established breastfeeding. They aren't likely to be, you know, confused by this nipple and because they, they suck on it differently. Um, and then it might be, a, it'll be a lot easier for them to learn how to take a bottle at about four weeks old. But I generally say, do a lot of skin to skin, spend a lot of time cuddling with your baby, getting to know your baby for the first month, and then you can think about pumping. Um, and in fact, many um, parents, if they are lucky enough to have a good uh, milk, a good uh, maternity leave, uh, they don't have to really pump until about maybe two or three weeks before to build up a little bit of a supply. Some folks start 
early thinking they need this giant stash. They've seen these things on the internet. (laughs) And I say, don't do that because first of all, many times people end up donating it because they realize they don't need it. They pump for the baby for the next day and then they only use their freezer stash occasionally. Um, And it can just, again, cause you to have an oversupply, which can lead to some medical issues. So Hmm. um, don't let those things freak you out. Um, You know, only pump really what you need. So is it right that unless your baby is losing weight, you're making enough, is, is losing weight, you're making enough milk? Essentially, yes. And the ways that you can tell is to, first of all, look at the weight gain. Is the baby gaining steadily? Now, sometimes some babies might gain slower than others. And some babies might seem like they're falling off a curve slightly at some point. But um the World Health Organization has um, growth charts that are based on uh, breastfed babies. But unfortunately, there's still some growth charts out there that are based on formula-fed babies. So a breastfed baby might look like their growth is faltering when that's perfectly normal because it does tend to slow down after the first few months, their growth. Um, But generally, you want to see them gaining, you know, slowly um, but steadily. Um, And when the baby is first born, they will lose weight. Uh, It's a normal thing. They have lots of fluids, but they should have regained their birth weight by about two weeks, by two weeks. Um, Some babies will regain it sooner than that. And the other thing to keep in mind is if a parent has had a lot of, um, so a baby might lose a lot of weight in the first 24 hours if there've been a lot of fluids that have happened during labor. Um, and the baby's gotten kind of puffed up with that. So sometimes people are now going, doctors are now going to using the 24-hour weight when the baby has been um, born after 24 hours. That's the weight that they use as their birth weight, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so a baby needs to have regained that by two weeks old. Um, The other cues to look for is, is the baby having lots of wet diapers? Is the baby um, stooling regularly. Now in the first day or so, they're going to have maybe one stool and then two, three, four, um, as the days go on. But by about four or five days of life, they should be having, you know, four to six decent size, um, poops every day. So again, one, what goes in must come out. So you look at that and you also look at the swallowing. So, um, when a baby is latched, well, you can hear lots of swallows, usually once every two, one to two sucks. Um, They won't do that the entire time. At the beginning, they might just have little flutter sucking because they're trying to let down the milk. But once the milk lets down, and not everyone feels they're let down, but often you can tell there's a letdown because you hear that swallowing, Um, then that should go on for a little while. Um, Then maybe the baby will flutter suck a little bit and then trigger another letdown later on. So it's just important to watch for the swallows the wet and wet diapers and stools and the weight gain. And if all those things are happening generally, then you don't have to worry about your baby's uh, ability to get enough. They're getting enough out of the breast. Mm-hmm. Now, what about uh, feeding on demand as opposed to spaced feedings? Sure. Well, um, we used to use that word demand, and now we like to use the word cue because demand sounds like the baby's just this tyrant. <laughs> Um, and really, so the main thing is, is uh, if you're feeding a baby on cue, then you know that they are getting what they need. Um, 
if you think about it, would you like someone to say to you, oh, okay, sorry, it's uh, two o'clock in the afternoon and you just had a drink of water a uh, half an hour ago. So nothing more for, you can't have anything more for another two hours. <laughs> um, babies, you know, they nurse for things other than food. Um, they nurse because they're thirsty, they're hungry. They just want to suck. They have need the comfort. So there's many reasons why they nurse. And it's really important to follow their cues um, because the more a baby nurses, particularly in the first few weeks, the more milk will be produced. And if, especially if you limit it in the first few weeks, the um, milk ducts are not going to build up the storage capacity that's needed for a long-term healthy milk supply. So it's really important to go with your baby's cues. And really the last cue you want to wait for is when a baby's crying. Um, mm. You want to look for other things such as them sucking on their hands, turning their head from side to side, making these little squeaky noises that parents you know, learn to <laughs> recognize, mm -hmm. um, bobbing their head, those kinds of things. Look for those cues first. It's usually easiest just to put the baby right on and then um, that will ensure that the baby is getting plenty to eat. And again, if they're very sleepy, they're not nursing at least the eight to 12 times in 24 hours, you may have to encourage them to nurse more often. But it's really important not to also look at the spacing. A lot of people have heard this, the term, you know, oh, they baby needs to nurse every two to three hours. Well, if you think about it, eight to 12 times in 24 hours, that averages out to every two to three hours. But not everybody does it that way. I mean, I don't, you know, I'll, I'll eat a meal and then I'll have a drink of water half an hour later. So it's one of these things where often babies will cluster together when they want to nurse and then they might have a big sleep after that. So it averages out to every two to three hours, but it's not literally every two hours, two to three hours. Sometimes you will have this unusual baby who is like, yep, on the dot, every two to three hours, boom, that's when they want to nurse. But most babies, I would say, will cluster their nursings together um, and then maybe have a longer sleep and then cluster together. So you want to look at the total number of nursings rather than the spacing exactly. And, you know, often you're, you hear people say, just, you know, try other things, change their diaper, you know, bounce them around before you nurse. I say, just nurse them first. You mm -hmm. know, if, it, if that's not what they want, they'll let you know, and then you can do something else. But usually that, that takes care of it. Yeah. And, I guess with spaced feedings, is there, are there associations with issues like clogged ducts and mastitis and colic and things like that? Absolutely, yeah. If you are, you know, scheduling a baby's feeds, you know, sometimes your breasts will get over full. Um, you might get some clogged ducts or mastitis, so it's that can also be a problem. Um, in addition, you know, we've heard about these scheduling programs that people talk about, and again, it does often lead to. Uh, early weaning because the baby is not taking out as much as they need to to create a full milk supply, and so that the the supply slowly gradually diminishes and um, and people end up weaning early. Mm. So yeah, absolutely. I don't I don't ever recommend any kind of um, scheduled you know artificial schedule. Your baby you you will find will probably at some point fall into their own schedule um, in the very first weeks. Often it's, you know, very irregular. Um, but as they get older, closer to one to two to three months, they, you might find, oh, yeah, now I know when the baby generally likes to nurse. And you can kind of follow their lead. And they end up kind of putting together their own schedule. Now, on the other hand, 
there are some people who are totally not scheduled in their lives for their whole life. You know, you, you probably know people who, you know, they eat whenever, they sleep whenever, they're totally unscheduled. And then other people who just right on the clock, that's when they do things. Yeah. And babies are like that too. Every baby is an individual. So you may find uh, your baby to be one or the other or a combination. Mm-hmm. And what about if the baby is only napping for, say, 20 to 30 minutes at a time during the day? Is that an indication that they're not getting enough milk or is that kind of normal? Um, it, it, prob- it can be very normal. Mm-hmm. And I would say that often that's the case because people want, um, they want to put their babies down to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, and babies aren't really meant to be put down to sleep in the early days. They really are meant to be on someone to sleep. Uh, if you look at primates in the zoo, if you look at uh, monkeys, basically the babies sleep in their arms. Um, in other cultures, babies are strapped to a parent's back or they're in someone's lap and that's where they sleep. So having that contact with someone is very normal. So if a baby is put down, um, they often will wake up fairly quickly because they're not connected with someone and they'll want to be They'll, they'll seem like they want to nurse, and maybe they do, but they also want to be held. Mm-hmm. So I always say if you can, try to you know, keep a baby on someone as much as possible in the, in the early days. As, as they get older, they become a little, it becomes a little easier to put them down. Um, but the other thing that to be aware of is that often parents will try to get babies to sleep longer uh, because our culture says you have to put them down to sleep by swaddling them. And swaddling can sometimes make a baby sleep longer, but it also can make them not want to nurse as often and can lead to a lower milk supply because the baby's not waking up when they normally would to get on the breast. So I don't really recommend swaddling unless a baby is just inconsolable. And that seems to be the only thing that will help them settle. Mm -hmm. And what about feeding high needs babies? What what are high needs babies? (laughs) Well, I had a couple of those and um, it's funny because I, my first one, I would, I, I say she nursed probably every 20 minutes for the first two months of her life. (laughs) I mean, literally she wanted to be on the breast all the time, but, and she was a very, you know, very happy baby, grew very fat. Now, occasionally a baby that wants to nurse like every 20 minutes is on the breast all the time. That could be an indication if the baby's very unhappy that they aren't getting enough milk because they're not nursing efficiently. But sometimes it can just be that they're a very high need baby and they want to be nursed all the time. Um, I remember with my my third one, sometimes I would I would I would forget to I would I would be like, my gosh, she hasn't nursed in two hours. What's wrong with her? <laughs> I, did I forget to feed the baby because she wouldn't you know indicate that to me as often. But um, my high needs one absolutely would. And what we found really helped is um, having the baby close to us all the time. Um, lying down to, for naps to nurse the baby and keep the baby asleep, um, carrying the baby in a sling or holding the baby. Um, it can be seem like it's really exhausting um, if you feel like you should be putting this child down and this child should be able to sleep without you. But sometimes if you can just say, oh, okay, this baby really needs me, is really connected to me, and realize that it's a very short period in, in someone's life, um, and keep your that, that baby on you as much as possible. Often things get a lot easier and the baby doesn't cry as much. Now, occasionally you will still have a baby who's very colicky at night. Um, but again, I think sometimes a lot of it comes with an expectation that the baby should be able to be settled without breastfeeding. And if you can just often just put them on the breast, keep them skin to skin, 
often that will help settle even the most high need baby or carry them around, obviously, in a carrier. Mm-hmm. And with regards to uh, pumping and bottle feeding, can you tell us about pace feeding? Absolutely. Um, and by the way, I do want to mention that there are occasionally um, parents who really um, don't want to breastfeed for various reasons, and they do uh, exclusively pump and give a bottle. So in that case, obviously, you wouldn't you know, say that they couldn't do a bottle early on and they couldn't pump early on. Uh, okay. um, but but it's not, um, that's, that's just a, uh, that's kind of an unusual situation. But yes, definitely, um, unfortunately, in our culture, we've seen all of these pictures of babies lying basically on their backs in someone's arm and the bottle is kind of almost uh, vertical, uh, pouring kind of, you know, going into their mouth. Um, unfortunately, if you do that, if you think about, if you put your head back and think about what that would be like, you wouldn't be able to stop it. You would have to just glug, glug, glug and, and drink and drink and drink and you couldn't stop the flow, um, which can lead to overfeeding. A baby, you know, might throw up. Um, a baby might um, not be able to, you know, get, get a lot of, of gas and that sort of thing because they can't control that. They just have to keep drinking. And also if a parent is pumping, then you might end up using up a lot more of their milk than is necessary. So paste feeding is more where the baby is sitting more upright. Often they can kind of be like sort of up um, against your body with their head almost near your armpit um, and then your arm around them. And then the bottle is more horizontal. So people, this has been something that's been kind of a myth in our society that the nipple has to not have any air in it. And that if there's air in the nipple, that's going to create a lot of gas for babies. Um, that's not really the case. If you think about it, when you drink a glass of water, there's air in that glass of water, but you're not necessarily going to be drinking, you know, swallowing air just because of that. Um, you're swallowing air just naturally from drinking. So uh, we say, don't worry about having a little bit of having some air in there. Just tip it up to the baby, let the baby drink, um, and then watch the baby if the baby seems a little uncomfortable, if they're knitting their brow, let them have a break. Even if they're not, even if they seem comfortable drinking, every, you know, 10 or so swallows, you want to tip it down, let the baby have a break. You're mimicking what happens in breastfeeding. A baby will drink and drink, and then they will take a little break to breathe. So that's really important to do it. It helps the baby not become too impatient when they go back to breastfeeding, because that's the other thing. If they get used to this flow that just never stops, then they sometimes get frustrated at the breast because they have to work to uh, get the milk to to let down. So pace bottle feeding is a very important thing to um, teach, especially people who are going to be caring for your baby so that they don't um, use up too much of your milk um, and the babies also um, stay more regulated and more calm at the breast. Mm-hmm. And what about the health of the baby's gut in the first six months, like uh, with regards to beginning to introduce solids? So a baby's gut starts out, in a, um, it's, it's a complicated issue, but essentially it's, um, it's open. I don't know the exact anatomy of it, but it's not something where they can absorb a lot of um, solid foods uh, efficiently. And it's often sometimes where formula can sometimes irritate their gut. Um, That's not to say that you can't ever use formula. Sometimes it's necessary. But if you have the option of avoiding it, 
it's helpful for a baby to just have the breast milk at the beginning because breast milk will help uh, introduce all of the good bacteria. It will help create a natural microbiome for the baby. It will help seal um, the openness of the gut. Um, and again, I think you've heard of leaky gut syndrome. Um, sometimes they think that it might possibly be connected early on to having some issues with uh, early uh, formula or early uh, foods being introduced. They don't have exact uh, research on it yet. But in any case, you want to, as much as possible, just keep it to um, breast milk whenever possible, um, because that will help um, seal the gut and help the gut become more able to handle foods as the baby gets older. So in general, uh, it's recommended not to introduce anything other than breast milk for the first six months, because after that, things start to be more easily digested for the baby, and they're less likely to develop allergies because of foreign proteins being absorbed into this open gut. Mm-hmm. And what about uh, things like drinking water in that in those early months? Uh, for a baby? Yeah. Drinking water? Um, babies don't need anything but breast milk in those early months. Yeah. Um, and people have, you know, over, there's many cultures where there's, you know, certain teas and things that are given to babies. They're not, not none of them are particularly necessary. Um, there might be a cultural thing where people want to do that, but in general, it's best to avoid that. Um, even in the Sahara desert, babies don't have to drink any water. They get all of the liquid that they need from the breast milk. In fact, you know, breast milk is, largely fluid. Um, It has a lot of other things as well, but they really don't need anything other than breast milk. Mm -hmm. And what are some uh, signs of readiness that the child is, the baby is ready for, to be introduced to foods? Um, Yes. So uh, one of the things that you want to look for is a baby who seems interested in food. Um, So a baby who's kind of watching the food go from your spoon to your mouth Now, this can be a little bit of a false alarm because sometimes the baby just wants the spoon. So if you see them doing this, you can hand them a spoon and see if they just want to to gnaw on that. Mm -hmm. Um, Other signs of readiness are a baby able to sit up by themselves, um, a baby who is has lost the tongue thrust. That's one of the uh, best ways to tell. So when my when my parents generation Uh, they would take a little spoon with uh, a puree on it, put it in the baby's mouth. The baby would stick their tongue out and push that out. They'd wipe it off with the spoon and shovel it back in. Um, That was very common. Um, But that tongue thrust is a protective reflex for babies to keep them from getting food that they don't need at at that age. And so it's best to wait until that tongue thrust has disappeared, that reflex has disappeared. And so what some people will do is they'll take maybe a little piece of banana, um, you know, mushy, mushed banana and put it on their little finger and put it on the baby's uh, tongue. And if the baby pushes it out, then they're not ready. And then you can just wait a few more weeks and try again. Um, So that to me is often the best way to do it. Um, and the other thing to keep in mind is that in many societies, they don't really do use any kind of baby food or purees. Um, they might chew up something um, in, to soften it to give to the baby. Um, but generally, if you want, you can just have a little high chair tray with a few bits of food, a little pile of mashed banana, a few bits of sweet potato, something like that, and let the baby just play with it and experiment. And some of it will go in their mouth. But really, it's just for a uh, introduction to food. Their primary nutrition doesn't come from 
solid foods until the second year of life. So the first year of life, they need to be have breast milk or possibly formula if you're not breastfeeding. Um, and that's going to be their primary source of nutrition. And really just letting them kind of experiment with food and put little bits in their mouth is going to be a really good way for them to have a good relationship with food. Mm-hmm. So is that another sign of readiness, mastering that pincer grasp with the thumb and yeah. forefinger? Yes, absolutely. They can take little their uh, fingers, their uh, first finger and their thumb and pick up little bits. That can be a good sign of readiness as well. Um, and you know, that will help a baby uh, be able to put the food in their mouth, although they won't be all that coordinated with it until they get a little bit older. So yeah, I actually, you know, my first one, I dutifully made up the rice cereal and (laughs) shoveled it in her mouth at six months old. Um, My second child, I I don't remember what I did. But my third one, I was like, well, I'm just going to wait and see how she does. And about nine months old, she's crawling around on the floor, picking up bits of food and putting it in her mouth. And I said, okay, I guess she's ready. <laughs> I better feed this child. <laughs> um, okay, so what about, you mentioned before about early weaning. Um, yes. How, yeah, I've, I've heard that it's impossible for a baby to self-wean um, before the age of at least 18 months. Would that be right? That's generally true. Um, there are occasionally times where babies will have uh, what we call nursing strikes and people will think that they're weaning. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally, that's not something that they would do until they're a little older. Um, so sometimes if, if a baby you know, is teething and they bite down and mother is really you know, startled and um, kind of screams, then the baby might be very upset and not want to breastfeed. And so that would be a time maybe to wor- work with a lactation consultant and um, and talk about ways to get the baby back to the breast, because generally they're not ready until they're older. Mm-hmm. Um, Kathy Detweiler, uh, an anthropologist, basically uh, looked at uh, primates and when they got their teeth and when they, I believe, tripled their body weight or quadrupled their body weight and so on. And she uh, theorized that most children, the natural age of weaning is sometime between two and seven years. So Mm -hmm. overall, that's generally when a a child would self-wean. However, there might be some unusual children who maybe wean a little bit closer to, say, 18 months or so. Mm -hmm. And so some other things that may cause that would be what the mother being pregnant again or being fed too many solids. Is that right? Yes. Sometimes if, if you, that's the other thing that we talk about is that in the first year of life, you want to always nurse first because mm-hmm. that's the primary source of nutrition. You don't want to fill them up with solids and then try to nurse them because they might not be hungry. So yeah. um, want to nurse first and then offer the solids. Occasionally, yes, you're right. If there is a pregnancy that happens, um, a baby might wean because the, the milk might turn to, back to colostrum around around the end of the first trimester or so. It depends on the, the parent. Sometimes it's later and they'll continue with more of milk until later in pregnancy. But if that milk turns to colostrum, some babies don't like it and they will then wean. Some babies nurse right through it and have no problem at all. And they just keep nursing um, through and people will nurse too at the same time. But um, that can be a cause uh, of some babies wanting to wean. So for the babies that do nurse right through pregnancy, does the milk ever dry up at any point for them? Well, it it doesn't actually dry up. It becomes colostrum. Okay. So there's still colostrum there, um, which is still milk. Um, It's basically the first milk, but it's not the volume. um, And sometimes they don't like the taste of it. 
but um, but it's definitely always going to be something there, and it's also going to have tremendous amount of immune factors, so it is going to help uh, the older child, um, e- even if it's only a small amount. Mm-hmm. And what you said before about um, breast milk, you're wanting it to be the primary source of nutrition until at least the second year of life. Yes. At, at what point um, are we wanting to give priority to the solids over the breast milk? Uh, generally a baby will let you know that. Um, so I would say parents don't need to worry about that. They can just nurse, uh, whenever the child asks for it. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the child will, will eat as they choose. Um, if you offer a variety of nutritious foods to a child, um, they're going to make their choices and they might eat only one thing on a certain day, but generally they will balance it out. They might have fruit one day and some protein another day. Um, I mean, unfortunately, there are some toddlers out there that are not nursing and they, you know, seem to survive on a few Cheerios and air. And so it really (laughs) is wonderful if you can continue nursing because that is nutritional insurance because uh, toddlers are uh, notoriously picky. But um, I think that's one of the things people get very nervous about and think they have to make sure their child eats. But there is a, a really good book out there called Why Won't My Child Eat? And basically a lot of it says is just kind of relax, offer a variety of really, you know, uh, healthy, nutritious, tasty foods. Um, sometimes you might have to do it in uh, as like just little snacks, you know, take the pressure off where baby's not just sitting down to eat meals uh, with the family. Maybe sometimes that'll work. They, they love that um, social aspect of it and they'll eat while there's meals. Other times they're very distracted and it's better just to put a little maybe an ice cube tray with a few little bites of cheese or, or a few little uh, bits of sweet potato or, you know, or some fruit or whatever it is. And the child can just help themselves as they go about their, uh, about their playing. Mm -hmm. So um, you, if you can offer those kinds of things, generally babies uh, or or toddlers will choose uh, nutrition and then um, they will nurse to make up the rest of it. Um, Now, of course, you know, you don't always, if, if the parent really is looking to try to be part of the weaning process, um, they don't have to respond every single time that a, a child um, nurses. As they get older, uh, as, as, as wants to nurse, as they get older, children are more easily distracted. So sometimes you can substitute some food or substitute some a, a bottle of water or, you know, stay on your feet so that the that you're not sitting down and the, not, the child's not crawling into your lap. There's many different weaning techniques. And again, that's something you could always uh, speak with a, uh, a breastfeeding counselor about. Mm-hmm. I like um, that term, nutritional in- insurance. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, it's it does, it, even as your breast milk gets to be a smaller amount, um, as the child gets older, it's still more. It's still very concentrated with tremendous amounts of um, nutritional factors and immune factors. So it's incredible for them. Cool. Okay, so there's something I heard a while ago, and I'm not sure, sure. Um, how much validity it has. So maybe you have some insight for me. Um, well, actually, it's it's two things that they relate. Uh, the first sure. is that um, there are some components in breast milk whose purpose is solely to assist in building the immune system, mm-hmm. and of which there are no substitutes elsewhere in nature or through supplementation. And the other right. is that uh, the immune system is not fully developed until about the age of seven or eight years of age. At one right. year of age, it's possibly only at about 50%, and at two years, it's at about 90%. Can you right. speak to that uh, validity and 
share some insight into that relationship between breastfeeding and the immune system? Well, that's uh, what a lot of research has found, and um, that is why one of the theories around why long-term nursing has been the biological norm over the history of our species. Mm-hmm. Um, back when we were hunter-gatherers and um, parents had lot, a lot less body fat, uh, there, it was normal for children to nurse maybe you know six or seven years. In fact, I think um, baby teeth used to be called milk teeth because the permanent teeth didn't come in until a child was weaned. So they had these milk teeth during mm-hmm. the time that they were nursing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, it absolutely makes sense that that's kind of the timing in terms of their immune system. Um, it's amazing um, if you think about it because breast milk has actually been defined by a number of researchers as a tissue. It's actually, we think of it as a food, but it's actually a tissue. Um, and many of us call it white blood um, because it's made from a parent's blood and it is full of things like white blood cells, all kinds of, oh, it's just, there's so many components to it that it's hard to, you know, name all of them. But it's tremendous amount of immune cells, of um, lactoferrin, all kinds of immune factors that really um, are, are there to help build a child's immune system. Um, in addition, um, it's, we used to think that breast milk was sterile. Um, but we now know that it is full of good bacteria that seed a child's gut, which is also very important for their immune system. And one of the other components that's so amazing in breast milk is um, what's called human milk oligosaccharides. And those are sugars um, that are not digested by the baby. They are specifically to feed the bacteria in the baby's gut. And what's so amazing about human milk oligosaccharides is that every parent produces, uh, there's a a huge variety of them, I think maybe 170 different varieties. I mean, don't quote me on that, but um, research has found incredible amounts uh, of varieties of them. And every parent produces a specific fingerprint of oligosaccharides specific to her baby. So, I mean, there's no way that formula could ever do something like that, could ever customize milk to it, to, um, to, to take the place of that. Um, it's a living tissue. It's a living uh, fluid that is there to not only nourish a baby, but also contribute to their immune system. Hmm. So from what you said with, um, what, what was it, Kathy Deplala, with her saying yes. um, <laughs> that age with, yes, yeah, what being what two and a half years is the absolute kind of minimum I guess right can you share with us some more details into what elements like nutritional emotional mental physical etc that children receive from full-term breastfeeding sure absolutely now of course it is the gold standard of nutrition because it's you know filled with exactly what they need um, in terms of you know proteins carbohydrates vitamins immune factors and so on Um, but of course there's a lot more to um, to breastfeeding than just nutrition or even the immune factors, even the you know um, disease prevention factors. It is also tremendously important for uh, a, a child's emotional development and um, really helps them connect to the parent, um, helps them be held, uh, the skin-to-skin contact, regulates their hormonal system, helps regulate their their temperature, all of these kinds of things. And of course, it is tremendously connecting to be on someone being connected to a parent. And that's why even if a parent is unable to breastfeed or is adopting a baby, um, uh, 
you know, whatever it is, if they are choosing to use a bottle, it's important for the parents to also always hold the baby and interact with the baby because there's a tremendous amount of, you know, connection and emotional development that goes on. Um, and as a child gets older, that continues to be important for them. Now, some kids seem to just, you know, want to go off and play, but then they'll come and they'll, you know, want to nurse for about two minutes and then they'll go off and play and want to nurse for about two minutes. So it's really that connection that helps kind of ground them as they're going out into the world and exploring and they have that, that uh, connection. Mm. And I've even heard that the movement of the tongue and the mouth over the years helps shape the palate and the jaws so that there is enough space in the mouth for all the Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that has been connected to um, a better ability um, to breathe correctly. Um, So not to lack, you know, less sleep apnea and so on, um, as well as less orthodonture. So it yeah, there's absolutely and and not only um, that, but the switching back and forth between sides often helps with um, their development of their vision as well. So it's it's uh, all encompassing. Hmm. So breastfeeding and sleeping are inextricably uh, connected. Can you share with us the safe guidelines for breast sleeping? Absolutely. Yeah, Dr. James McKenna came up with the term breast sleeping Mm -hmm. uh, because that is uh, the biological norm for infants and children to sleep next to their, their breastfeeding parent. Um, so essentially what we, it's been boiled down by the authors of Sweet Sleep, was a, which was a book that was written by uh, several um, La Leche League uh, authors. And I uh, highly, highly recommend that to anybody who is interested in this topic, as well as Dr. McKenna's new book, which is called Safe Infant Sleep. Mm-hmm. And essentially, um, you, it, sleeping with your child can be made very safe as long as you follow these guidelines. And the seven sleep guidelines are, and I hope I can remember them all because <laughs> I don't have the graphic in front of me, is first of all, a uh, sober uh, parent. So no drugs or alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if there is a situation where a parent has take has to take uh, pain medication, for example, that makes them very sleepy, they can still have the child next to them. The, uh, the baby should just, they'll be on a separate surface, like a sidecar crib that's been attached to the bed, for example. Um, non-smoking. Smoking is a very highly, is an, is an issue because the parent breathes out chemicals that can be harmful to the baby. It's been connected to a higher incidence of sudden infant death syndrome. So um, if a parent is a smoker, it's important for them to try to quit. And if not at, uh, able to at that time, to take precautions uh, such as change, you know, showering, ch- changing clothes, and keeping baby at somewhat of a distance as well for sleep. Breastfeeding is another part of the safe sleep seven. Um, which is not to say that uh, if a parent is using formula that they have to not have the baby in bed, they could still, again, have the baby on a separate surface that's connected to their bed mm-hmm. uh, for the first four months. And after that, the researchers all agree that any responsible, non-smoking, sober adult can bed share on a safe surface. Um, but breastfeeding is uh, one of the most important ones um, as well. Uh, formula unfortunately has been linked to a higher le- uh, incidence of sudden infant death syndrome. So, mm-hmm. um, so those are three. I'm trying to remember now <laughs> uh, what the other ones are. Um, 
So, oh, and then the other one is um, no swaddle or no sweat. So it's really important that you not overdress your baby. Uh, overheating has been connected to sudden infant death syndrome. So you don't want to have a baby in bed with you who is swaddled or in heavy clothing because that can uh, be a problem, particularly since when they're in bed with you, you have the body heat so they can more easily overheat. Safe surface, of course, is very important. And that's a multidimensional thing to, to look at. You have to make sure that you have a firm mattress. Now, it doesn't have to be rock hard. There are some videos online that can show you how to tell if your mattress is firm enough. Um, you have to make sure that there are no um, heavy covers. You don't want lots of fluffy pillows and big comforters. That's not to say you can't have anything. You can have a pillow, you know, one firm pillow anchored under your head, perhaps one between your knees, um, have maybe uh, several lighter blankets rather than a big heavy comforter and try to keep those down by your waist. Mm -hmm. You don't want to have any kind of like little strings or anything around that could get a baby could get tangled up in such as a, a something from uh, one of your uh, window coverings. You want to be careful that those are tied up. Even a, a parent, if they have long hair, you want to make sure that's tied up so it doesn't get tangled around. So there's a number of, of considerations that you need to look at um, in terms of uh, of making sure your your space is safe. And I'm just trying to remember, <laughs> that was, I think, six. Did I get six, Emily? Uh, I think um, so. Did you mention the, um, like the position that the baby sleeps in? So, yes. One of the things that is often we talk about is something called the cuddle curl. So that's having a baby sort of in this safe space, really between a parent's breast and their legs. So that if you're on your side, you create this little safe space with your legs drawn up and your arm above mm -hmm. where the baby is protected. They're not going to be getting up onto the pillows. Um, it's going to be very difficult for you to roll over onto your baby because your legs and your arms are there. Mm. And the thing to keep in mind is that people often, that's something they worry about tremendously, that they're going to roll over onto their baby. But it's really important to keep in mind that you don't roll over onto your cat or dog when they're in bed with you. And even if you did, they would let you know, and a baby would too. So unless, it, you know, you really do sleep in a whole different way once you become a parent, um, particularly a breastfeeding parent is very tuned in to that baby. And in general, if a baby's breastfeeding, which is another reason why they say the breastfeeding parent, at least for the first few four months, because the baby tends to stay oriented towards the breast. So they tend to stay right there and they're not going to be wandering around the bed. Um, so that's uh, something we call the cuddle curl. I do like to mention, though, that some people feel like they have to stay in that one position all night. They cannot move an inch. You don't have to do that all night. You can you can roll over and stretch and, you know, maybe be on your back a little bit some of the time. So, you know, you don't have to be a martyr and feel like you're constantly having to be, you know, in this just one place. And there's lots of ways you can also make it more comfortable, like, for example, putting a, um, a pillow between your knees. So um, but that can be something that's very helpful to, you know, be connected with your baby and have them right there. And often um, parents can just put uh, the baby, the baby will just go right onto the breast and uh, parents will latch and go right back to sleep. So yeah. a lot of times you can get way more sleep um, if the baby is just right there. Sometimes you have to kind of adjust positioning. If the baby's up too high, they might be it might be uncomfortable. So you might want to pull the baby's legs down closer towards your your, your belly, snuggle the baby in further so that they're 
especially their shoulders, so that their head tips back and they're able to get a big mouthful of breast. Some parents, if they have larger breasts, may have to put a towel, a folded towel under the breast to lift it up to get the nipple to where the, the child can uh, can reach it. But, you know, all of these things can be worked out. So, um, oh, the one other last thing is is having the baby on their back. And that's something that's been something that they found out has been helpful in preventing SIDS. Um, having babies on their front um, often helped made the baby sleep a little too heavy, and so it was uh, connected to SIDS. The thing to keep in mind with um, with baby in bed is that they generally will go from their side and to back onto their back rather than on their tummy. But if the baby stays on their side in that cuddle curl, that's still fine because they're not able to roll onto their tummy because the mother's body is in the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's okay too. And the other thing is that often people will worry about the fact that the baby will only sleep on a parent's chest on their tummy. And they've heard this back to sleep thing, mm-hmm. but that's a very different thing. If you have a parent who's awake sitting up and the baby is sleeping on their tummy on the parent's chest, they're being constantly reminded to breathe by the parent's movements and the parent's breathing. And essentially that's what they, um, a lot of research research has um, found is that they believe that SIDS may be connected to an immature breathing system so that the baby sleeps so deeply that they forget to breathe. And so that's one reason why even the American Academy of Pediatrics and other organizations around the world, even if they don't endorse bed sleep, bed sharing, breast sleeping, they encourage room sharing because that sound, the sounds that a parent makes, the breathing, et cetera, helps remind a, a baby to wake up and breathe. And for parents who are breast sleeping with a baby and also have an older child, is it sufficient for the mother to sleep in between them to protect the baby from the sibling? Well, it is not considered the ideal. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> um, it is recommended that the you know that you only have just the baby in bed and not a sibling. Mm-hmm. But I can just tell you realistically, a lot of us have done that. And um, a lot of us have, and that, but that is a really essential thing is to have the child not be next to the baby. Yes. So the older child should be on the other side of the parent. Hopefully, if there are two parents involved, the uh, the second parent can kind of take responsibility for the toddler. Yeah. And um, but if if there's a single parent, for example, he or she could still do that as long as they had a big amount of room. And sometimes people will even use a sidecar crib to extend the space like that. So mm-hmm. yeah, even though it's not the ideal, a lot of people have definitely done it. And it's um, as long as you are very conscious of the the two and keeping them apart, it can be a, a it can it can work out fine. Yeah. And is there an age when it's acceptable for them to sleep together? You know, I don't think anyone's ever done a lot of research on that. Mm-hmm. But in general, what we find is that by the time they're about 18 months old, they're pretty, you know, sturdy and self-sufficient. Um, so I think partly it depends on how old the older child is. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd be a little concerned maybe about if you have a three-year-old and an 18-month-old, but, you know, say you have a four or five-year-old and an 18-month-old, then that might work out just fine. Mm. So I think every parent kind of has to use their own judgment. And of course, part of it, is that you want to make the space that those siblings are in very safe. And so a, a lot of times people will never use a crib. They will go from having baby in the bed to having a mattress on the floor of a child-proof proof room. And um, basically it's kind of a big crib in a way. <laughs> so that the, you know one child can be there or two children can be there. And there's really nothing in the room that can 
you know, get them in trouble. Um, I remember my son was a big climber. And so we even had to move his dresser out into the hall to, to <laughs> totally make his, his room childproof. <laughs> so there's, you have to be creative sometimes with things like that. And um, what about, is there, is there an age when bed sharing becomes uh, problematic or weird? <laughs> Problematical weird. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Um, you mean like culturally? People yeah, just think it's probably it's culturally. Yeah. Okay. Because actually in many cultures, there's sometimes never any other room for sleeping. Um, yeah. For example, in many families in India, everyone sleeps in the same room and, you know, it doesn't depend, it depend, doesn't matter how old you are. People have gone from sleeping in the same room as their parents and, you know, until they were 18, 20 or so, and then they go off and they move to another country and they they sleep just fine by themselves. So um, in our culture, people do sometimes think it's strange if um, a child is in the bed, you know, as they get older. Um, but that's an interesting thing to think of because two adults share a bed regularly and we don't ever think about that. So why is it that children are not allowed to be in a bed? You know, I think a lot of it, it, there's, I I wrote a blog about this, about kind of what happened to infant sleep. And part of it uh, happened during the Victorian times when there was this kind of uh, prudishness about not wanting children to be in the marital bed. And there was a, you know, the sacredness of the marital relationship. And yet lots of, so, and I guess beds sort of became associated with sex. But as many as of us have found out, there's lots of other places for sex besides the bed. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, as long as you're, you know, conscientious about um, making sure your child is you know, protected in uh, whatever way it works for your family. I think it's totally fine to have your children in bed as long with you as long as you are comfortable. Uh, in fact, um, my children basically kind of went back and forth. Um, they were they had their own rooms uh, after a certain age, but they would often maybe start out there, then come into bed, then maybe go back. Or one of us would go into the room with them. You know, we played a lot of musical beds at night. And I like to say that the one child that we had who kept crawling into bed with us until he was about 12, um, he's probably one of my most independent children now. Yeah. <laughs> he's the one that kind of um, traveled around the world. Um, and he hiked about 2,600 miles on a, a long distance trail. So, you know, it really has nothing to do with their long-term independence. In fact, actually it may have something to do with it. It may make them more independent yeah. because they're so connected with being with their parents when they're younger. I've had that like connection cup filled up. So Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Almost um, everything I've learned about breastfeeding came from a Facebook group, uh, Expressions Lactation Services. They uh-huh. have um, they have lots of IBCLC administrators like yourself. Oh, great! And they are to breastfeeding what your group, biologically normal infant sleepers, to infant sleep. Um, Wonderful! I I also I also there's another group I highly recommend. It's called uh, LLLI Breastfeeding Support. So that's La Leche League International's breastfeeding support group so Ah, that's another good one cool thank you um so yeah I asked a question in this group uh years ago things you wish everybody knew about breastfeeding and I I ended up with close to 300 responses Mm -hmm. so I've um I've gone through and just selected some for us to uh quickly go over now as like a brief a brief sort of fact check and fact check and quash some misconceptions um (laughs) So if you can just give me your, we could probably talk about each one for at least five minutes, but if you could just give me your simplest, shortest answer. Um, Okay. 
Can babies taste the food you eat in their breast milk? Yes. Yes. They have they have had some studies where they can taste garlic makes it tastier, the breast milk. Um, there are some cultures where they have very spicy foods and the babies learn to like spicy foods partly from uh, drinking breast milk that has some spice to it. Wow. Okay. Um, so milk is made from your blood. So if you're eating something sugary, will that change in the blood sugar levels to go through to the baby? No. In general, um, your breast milk doesn't change a whole lot depending on what you eat. Um, the only the main exception to that is if there's some kind of a, a substance that the child might be allergic to, such as a milk protein, mm -hmm. uh, it could pass through into the milk and affect the baby. But generally, your milk doesn't isn't affected by so much by what you eat. Uh, of course, for your health, it's better to eat a, a healthy diet because the your body's going to take out what it needs from your body to make the milk, and um, you don't want to be left with with uh, less than you need. Yeah. Um, can the foods you eat make a baby gassy? Uh, yes and no. There are a lot of people who think things like onions and broccoli and, you know, cruciferous vegetables will make a baby gassy. In general, that's not the case. Um, most people eat all of those things and the babies are fine. Occasionally there will be a baby who is sensitive to certain things. And so you might have to eliminate those from your diet. Um, dairy tends to be number one on that. So if you have a baby that is, seems very gassy or very fussy, you can try eliminating dairy for about two weeks and see if it makes a difference. Mm -hmm. Okay. And contrary to popular belief, mothers can't just disappear for five minutes and come back with three liters of breast milk. Uh, how, <laughs> how challenging is pumping really? Uh, pumping, it really depends on the person. Some people find that they are able to let down for a pump very easily. Other people, I never was able to let down for a pump very much at all, but I had a big milk supply. Mm -hmm. um, but there are lots of tricks that you can do to um, kind of trick your body into letting down for a pump. So if you're having trouble pumping enough milk, um, definitely see an IBCLC because there's lots of things that you can do, including using your hands while you're pumping, doing some hand expression afterwards and so on. And it will help you get more milk out while you're pumping mm -hmm. or using a different pump. Sometimes the pumps are just not in good enough shape. They're not effective. There might be some issues with the uh, valves needing to be replaced or, and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, what's cluster feeding and should it be discouraged? Cluster feeding should not be discouraged. Cluster feeding is when a baby might, you know, nurse and then five minutes later want to nurse again, 20 minutes later want to nurse again, you know, mm -hmm. half an hour want to nurse again. And Actually, it's a really good thing in many ways because often when the baby nurses frequently like that, then they will get enough to kind of have a longer sleep period. Mm -hmm. So definitely not should, should not be discouraged because it's the way of a baby kind of tanking up and getting what they need. Mm -hmm. uh, what are the guidelines for drinking alcohol and breastfeeding? Drinking alcohol while breastfeeding, there have not been any studies that have shown that there's a safe level. However, many parents uh, find that, you know, not more than one or two drinks uh, in a day um, works fine for them. Uh, the thing about it is to keep in mind that if you can feel the alcohol, then it is probably in your milk. Um, if you are not able to feel it anymore, it has passed out of your milk. And it's not the kind of thing where it's in your milk and you have to pump it out 
to get rid of it. It will circulate in your blood and will be out of your milk the, the same way it's out of your blood. So that, you know, if you want to have a glass of wine at dinner, maybe nurse your baby right before, have a glass of wine, and it should be out of your system by the next time the baby nurses. Huh, okay. Uh, if you are tandem nursing uh, two children of different ages at the same time, will mm-hmm. the composition of the milk really be different to meet their different needs? Uh, some people, I think they've done a little bit of studies on that, but I'm not sure they've actually done that specific scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would probably be only be the case if you kept the baby, each child on one breast. Uh, okay. um, so in general, it's going to be what the infant needs because the baby, that will have been the newest child. Mm-hmm. The only difference, the only situation where that might be a little different is if say it's a parent who is inducing lactation or relactating so that the um, milk composition might be different because it's more uh, mature milk because it's been brought in. Maybe uh, the volume has increased from what the toddler was taking. But in general, it's going to be um, what the baby needs. And, and and I think it should be fine for both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, do babies consume more breast milk as they get older in the same way that a formula fed baby consumes more formula? So that's an interesting question because generally, no, um, once the milk supply has gotten up to where the baby needs it at about a month old, and again, that can be anywhere from about 16 to, you know, 35, 40 ounces, depending on the baby, uh, it stays the same um, until about six months. And then at that point when the, and so they don't really need increasing amounts of breast milk. They pretty much just take the same volume. It's very uh, easily digested um, and more well absorbed, I think, than formula. So once they're about six months old and they start solid foods, then the volume actually might start going down a little bit because they're taking less out of the breast because they're eating more foods. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can, you know, it can help again if you nurse first before you give food in order to keep up the fill milk supply until they're about a year old. Yeah. Okay. What is with um, nipple twiddling? <laughs> <laughs> Well, nipple twiddling is very similar to what a little kitten does or a puppy when they need on the mother's tummy to get the milk to come down. So if you've ever seen a kitten doing that, they are trying to get milk out. That's helping them get milk out. So it's a similar thing. They're trying to, that helps uh, let down more milk. Now, of course, it can really drive you crazy. (laughs) So what I recommend is that if you, if it does bother you, um, and if it even if it doesn't bother you at first, you might want to think, is this going to bother me later on if the child is older? One thing that can help is putting your arm over the other breast and letting the child play with your elbow. Sometimes that's less um, right. irritating mm-hmm. if they'll play with your elbow. Or you can have a nursing necklace or something else that you give to the child so that they can play with that instead of playing with your nipple. Mm-hmm. But it is a normal behavior. Yeah. And what is, what's the fist clenching guide for fullness? Do you know that one? The fist clenching guide for fullness. No, tell me Uh, about that. uh, I've heard of, it's something to do with like when the baby falls asleep. Oh, Um, yes, yes. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So if, so when they first are, um, are, you know, ready to nurse and they're hungry, they're often, they're, they're little fists. And this is primarily when they're really little, as they get older, it's not as much of an issue, Mm -hmm. but when they're really little, their fists are kind of in these little balls and then as they nurse and they get fuller and fuller, the, the hands tend to relax and the arm tends to get floppy. So a lot of times if you've heard the baby swallowing a lot during the nursing and their hands are relaxing and their arm is starting to get floppy and you can kind of lift it up and it kind of falls, 
then you know that the baby's getting fuller and fuller. And then often, in this case, a baby will kind of come off the breast by themselves. They'll kind of fall off milk drunk is what we say. Mm -hmm. So yes, that can be definitely be a good indicator of the baby feeling full is when their, their hands relax. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so why do doctors, pediatricians, even some midwives and lactation, count, uh, what did you call them? Counselors. Not, Counselors. Yeah, why do they uh, not know this and even give out different or detrimental advice? Well, I'm, when, it, when it comes to medical professionals, we have to keep in mind that depending on their training, allopathic doctors in general, um, primarily MDs, they get about an hour or so of breastfeeding training within their four years of medical school. <laughs> That's not much. No. <laughs> so they get very little breastfeeding um, training, at, whereas a lactation um, consultant like myself will get, you know, thousands of hours. Mm. So um, that's part of it. And a lot of times when they are um, talking to parents about breastfeeding, they're kind of going off their own personal experience or things they've heard. So that's something to remember when you're talking to a physician. Now, lactation counselors, it just kind of depends because they may or may not had, have had, you know, adequate training. Sometimes they might have taken one course that has a certain, you know, uh, bias against uh, certain ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. And that's why they, you know, might have certain ideas or they're going off their own personal experience. So that's why in general, if you're, you're not sure, you know, make sure you go to a reputable source, such as um, maybe Little H League International, Kelly Mom is another good website. Mm -hmm. um, if, and you, so you can kind of double check things that you're hearing or, you know, get a second opinion and, you know, in particular, see, seek out an international board certified lactation consultant. Cool. Well, we made it. That was a lot of questions. Um, oh, good. <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to add that I've forgotten to ask? I can't think of it. You've really, you know, covered things beautifully. So, um, yeah, I think we talked about how the two main things I tell people when they first, uh, they're looking to have a baby is, um, work, you know, let the baby self attach as much as you can. That can really help you know, things get off to a good start and to remember to hand express colostrum and give it to the baby if they are not latching in the first couple of days of life. Those are two things I always say, um, are, you know, can help keep, everything going. And then you don't have to worry about nurses or doctors wanting to give the baby formula um, if they're, you know, keeping the uh, colostrum going. Mm -hmm. uh, I have the uh, Laleche Leagues, the womanly art of breastfeeding. Is that a yes. book you'd recommend? Highly recommend that yep. one. It's cool. excellent. And it's been totally revised. A couple of years, they totally revised it and it's completely up to date. And I think it is kind of the gold standard in terms of uh, a breastfeeding text that I would have. And it not, uh, not only is it good for breastfeeding, but as the baby gets older, they have different things about potty training or discipline and such, and they can point you in the right direction for more information. So yes, I highly recommend that one. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I will put uh, links in the show notes to your website, uh, What yeah. Babies Need, and your Facebook group, Biologically Normal Infant Sleep. Excellent. Um, where else would you suggest people go to learn more about what we've talked about or to get in contact with you? Um, so a couple of good websites. One is the uh, Mother Baby Sleep Lab at mm -hmm. uh, the University of Notre Dame. That's Dr. McKenna's website. It has a lot of good information. Um, another one is um, BASIS, which is the Baby 
informa- uh, baby information sleep source. Um, that's uh, in the UK and has a lot of great information on infant sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, and for breastfeeding, again, I think I said La Leche League. Um, I highly recommend also their sleep book, The Sweet Sleep, and uh, Dr. McKenna's book, um, which is called um, Safe Infant Sleep. Uh, there's and then and then there's lots of other you know resources out there as well. There's an excellent website called uh, Evolutionary Parenting oh, that yes, has yeah. some good information. Um, there's uh, Sarah Hockwell Smith or Ockwell Smith has some really good information. Pinky McKay is another author that has some good good stuff. But the nice thing is that on our um, biologically normal infant sleep group, we have a set of resources. We have a file section that has a lot of that information that, so that can be a a good place for people to go. Mm -hmm. Mary, what an interview. (laughs) Um, Good. (laughs) I, I, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to answer all of my questions. I honestly did not think I would get through them all today. (laughs) Oh, good. Oh, I'm glad that worked out. That's so great. Well, I wasn't sure, you know, how how much we'd be able to cover either. So I'm glad it worked out. Um, Yeah. And I'm looking forward to hearing more from you with all the other interviews we're going to be releasing. Uh, I'm going to put out Alyssa Schnell's episode um, the week after this today's one uh, airs. Oh, excellent. It's a good sort of bonus episode that will tie nicely with today's topic. Yeah. Excellent. Mm. Um, oh, I'm so glad. So my final question for you to end on is if the entire world's knowledge was lost and you could only leave one sentence for future generations, what would it be? Yeah, I've been thinking about that. And I would say it would be to pay attention to your baby and they will teach you. So if you look at your baby and you focus on them, and you don't try to like you try to block out all the other things that maybe people are telling you to do. They'll tell you what you need, what they need. They'll tell you how often they need to nurse. They'll tell you they need to be close to you, that they need to be held. They need to be cuddled. They need to be loved. So that's what I would say. If you enjoyed this episode, you can join the discussions on our Facebook and Instagram pages. To hear more, subscribe for free on the podcast app on your smartphone. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and all of your favorite podcast platforms. If you would like to offer feedback or suggest a guest, email us at untaming.podcast at gmail.com.